Our sermon text this evening is in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. Now, I know I've been speeding through the book of Romans at a breakneck pace, and I I apologize for that, so we'll slow down a little bit, and Lord willing, we'll finish the book of Romans before I get called to glory. (laughs) Please hear again the word of God Almighty. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage, again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Let's pray. Almighty God, we pray for your blessing on your word. We ask that you would help us in the hearing of it and in the preaching of it. We pray, O God, for your Holy Spirit. Open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things in your word. Give us ears to hear, O God, and help us to believe to the salvation of our souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The late J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, in the chapter on the sons of God, wrote this. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Packer continues, Christians are God's children, his own sons and daughters, his heirs. Well, here in in this passage in Romans 8, 14 through 17, the Apostle Paul begins his teaching in the book of Romans on the sons of God. And in this passage, we will see this in three parts. The evidence of God's sons or the evidence of the sons of God in verse 14. The confidence of the sons of God in verses 15 and 16. And finally, the inheritance of God's sons in verse 17. We begin with the evidence of the sons of God. As you already know, not everyone is a son of God. In fact, it was the Lord Jesus Christ who taught that some are the sons of the devil. It is important for us to know whether we are the sons of God or the sons of the devil. To put it very simply, the sons of God will spend eternity with God in glory. The sons of the devil will spend an eternity with the devil being punished by the God of glory. Therefore, it is very important for us to understand whether we belong to the sons of God. How can we know if we are of the sons of God? 
Well, if you look with me at verse 14, we see here the evidence for the sons of God. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Who are the sons of God? Everyone who is led by the Spirit of God. Now, verse 14, as you notice, begins with a conjunction, four. It's connected to verse 13. It serves, in fact, as proof of what was stated back in verse 13. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The argument is like this. All who by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body will live. For they are the sons of God. Which is evident because they are led by the Spirit of God. Observe the correspondence in the terms between verses 13 and 14. Those who by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body correspond to those who are led by the Spirit. And those who shall live in verse 13 correspond to those who are the sons of God in verse 14. These two sets of terms describe the same thing from two different aspects or points of view, if you'll accept that. The, the word, it, the first case emphasizes the Christian acting by the power of the Holy Spirit putting to death the deeds of the body, and the second emphasizes the Christian being led by the Holy Spirit to put to death the deeds of the body. Now this word led, those who are led by the Spirit, is a word that means to be guided or directed. Sometimes we speak of being led by the Spirit um, when we find a good parking spot or... I was led by the Spirit to uh, buy this pair of shoes or that pair of shoes. And I I use silly examples, but you understand what I mean. And it's, it's certainly the case that God leads his people all the time. But this is not uh, an undefined or, or mysterious ordeal. It's very specifically related to the process of sanctification. Right? Those who are putting to death the deeds of the body by the power of the Spirit. That is what Paul means here by being led by the Spirit. The Spirit leading you, guiding you, taking you through in a war between God and sin. This word that's translated as led, which we said is to be guided or directed, is oftentimes used of infants and small children. They are unable to walk by themselves Therefore, they must be led or guided. It is also used uh, of um, leading a blind man. Right? He, he is not capable of navigating entirely for himself, so he must have someone who can see to lead him. It's used of a pilot of a ship. He steers it, right? He guides it to where he wants it to go. It's even used of a rider of a horse. So the picture that we should think of here is that the Spirit himself is the one guiding and leading God's people. So to be led by the Spirit then is to be directed or governed by him. And the principal thing in this context that he is doing is guiding you to say no to sin 
and yes to God. Who then are the sons of God? Well, according to verse 14, the sons of God are those who by the power of God, the Holy Spirit, put sin to death. That is to say, it is those who are led by the Spirit. You may recall from our scripture reading that the centurion at the crucifixion declared that Jesus was the Son of God. What evidence did he have to say that? Well, in that passage, Jesus was actually shown to be the Son of God in this way. That he trusted and obeyed God to the point of death. That was the evidence that he was the Son of God. Now, if you remember, at the beginning of Mark's Gospel, God anointed Christ and said he was his Son. And at several points throughout Mark's Gospel, God declares and demonstrates to people that Jesus is his son. But then Jesus, immediately after he's baptized, was led by the Holy Spirit into trial to be tempted of the devil. And throughout his entire earthly ministry, Jesus suffered afflictions and at every point said no to sin and yes to God all the way until the cross. Therefore, the centurion, seeing this righteous man suffer, seeing him being obedient to his father to the end, declared he is the son of God. This matches very well with what we read in Romans chapter 8, verse 3. God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. So Jesus, on the cross, puts sin to death. You, by the power of God the Holy Spirit, Growing in likeness to Jesus Christ puts sin to death. And that is what makes you identify as the sons of God. So there's an analogy between you and Christ. You show that you are God's sons when, by God the Holy Spirit, you put to death the deeds of your flesh. Of course, we must understand that it's an analogous relationship. We are not sons of God in the same exact sense that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is the eternal, begotten Son of God. He is himself divine. We are sons of God by redemption and creation and and by adoption. But the Spirit of Jesus Christ is in you, and you are in Christ Therefore, in that sense, you really and truly are spiritual sons of God. We say that Jesus is the Son of God in a unique sense. Nevertheless, he is the pattern for all of the sons of God. Simply put, a son puts his trust in and obeys his father. And that was demonstrated perfectly by our Lord Jesus Christ. The evidence then for being a son of God is putting your trust in and obeying your father, which is another way to say being led by the spirit. Now, this truth, this evidence of being a son of God is a great comfort for Christians. But it does shake off the confidence of hypocrites. There are many who will claim that God is their father, but will bear no resemblance to him, nor even have any goodwill towards him. The Apostle John, writing sometime later, says, 
In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. To practice righteousness is the same thing as to be led by the Spirit. Now, I want you to be careful here and, and observe the, the voice of the verb, right? To be led by the Spirit is passive voice. When we are putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit, that's active voice. That means we are the ones working. But in being led by the Spirit, which refers to the same activity, is describing it now from the Spirit's end, right? The Spirit is the one leading. The Spirit is the one guiding. The Spirit is the one enabling and empowering But he is called the Holy Spirit because he is holy and he's opposed to sin and unrighteousness. And therefore, when he takes up residence in a body, he begins an irreconcilable war against all sin and unrighteousness. And from the moment of first belief, from that moment onward, he is there seeking to wage war against sin and put to death those sins. Now, someone may ask, how much must I be led by the Spirit in order to know that I am a son of God? So you see, some Christians have a difficulty with connecting our assurance to our obedience. But, you know, I hope you understand that's not the right kind of question for a Christian. Right? We might as well ask, how much faith do I need in order to be justified. Don't you see that it's not the strength of your faith that justifies you? It is the strength of your Savior in whom you have faith that justifies you. So too it is your comfort, the evidence of your being a son of God is not about how much you are being led by the Spirit, but rather are you being led by the Spirit? Is the Spirit of God in you, working for you, a love for God that you say yes to God and you say no to sin? Is there a genuine desire, a sincere trust in Him? If so, then you are being led by the Spirit of God. Therefore, you are a son of God. So that is the evidence of the sons of God. The sons of God are those who are led by the Spirit of God. Being led by the Spirit of God is, in the Romans chapter 8, talking about progressive sanctification. Let's look now at the confidence, right? The, the evidence of our being sons of God comes from being led by the Spirit of God. But that alone is not the ground of our confidence as sons of God. There is more to it. The confidence of the sons of God in verses 15 and 16. And it refers, first of all, what gives us confidence? First of all, the spirit whom we have received. Paul says, you have not received the spirit of bondage to fear again, but the spirit of adoption. Now, the spirit of adoption, of course, is a title for God, the Holy Spirit. It is by him that we become the adopted children of God. But let's look first at what this contrast says. We did not receive a spirit of bondage. Paul is here referring to that bondage to the law of sin and death. Right? Remember that slavery to which we sold ourselves into sin and sin brings death? 
That's the bondage. And God is saying, I, didn't, I gave you the spirit of adoption to become sons of God. I did not give you a spirit of bondage, of slavery, of being sold into sin, to return back to that. And, and it says to fear again. And that fear, of course, is that fearful expectation of judgment. The fearful knowledge of sinning against God and being condemned. Do you remember back in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, we read, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ, for those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Okay, that, that no condemnation relates to not fear. As sons of God, you are not condemned. Sons of God are those who are in Jesus Christ, those who walk according to the Spirit. So you have a spirit of adoption. If you were still under the law of sin and death, you would have reason to fear. But because you are an adopted child of God, you do not need to fear condemnation. And we read in other places of the Lord's chastisement of his children. We read that in Deuteronomy 8. And we talk all the time about how the Lord disciplines his sons whom he loves. But understand, that is not the same as his condemnation. He treats us as sons. His discipline of us is of love, not of hatred. It is not wrath. It is not his fury. It is not condemnation. You need not fear that if you are a son of God. So he gives us the spirit of adoption, that is God, the Holy Spirit. But here is another reason for our confidence. So we have the spirit, and the spirit himself, it says, in whom we cry, Abba, Father. We'll call this a cry of faith, or a filial cry, the cry of a child to his father. This speaks of both faith and affection. A a belief that when you cry out, God hears you. And a belief that he is for you. This is the very same cry which you saw Jesus give in Mark chapter 14. And I want you to consider the confidence that Christ had in his father. That even though he is the son of God and and even though he is asking the father, if possible, to take that cup from him. Notice the confidence that he has. He, He cries out to him, Abba, Father. And he says, you can take this away, but if not, your will be done, not mine. You see, that is the heart of a son to a father. And that is the heart that God, the Holy Spirit, works in the sons of God, teaching us to trust and obey our Father in the very same way that Christ trusted his Father. Now, sometimes, and perhaps you've heard of this, the expression Abba, Father, is, is said to be um, kind of like our English Daddy or Papa. Daddy God. Um, I would say, too, that's probably not the best way to understand it, okay? And, and the reason why I say that is... When that was originally asserted, um, it was based upon a lexical study that has since been refuted. It, was, it is true that the word Abba is a word that was, was and still is used by young children. Okay? And, the, and the thought was, this is a word used by young children, therefore it has to be a very informal and familiar term. But then we discovered 
more writings that show that this term is used by adults as well as children. It is not merely a childish term, but it is a term that adults. In fact, I think the best way for us to understand this term is to see Christ's own usage of it. Okay, here we have Jesus Christ at the point of death, right? Sorrowful unto death, about to take upon himself the sins of the world, crying out to the Father. But who is Jesus Christ? He is the most mature, knowledgeable, grown man ever. And so he is speaking as a fully formed man, not speaking as a little child, but as a grown man. What then is he saying when he says, Abba, Father? Well, he's expressing his familiarity with God, his sincerity, his closeness, his trust in him, his confidence, and his resolute desire to obey him. Right? Father, you can spare me, but if not, your will be done. And that's what it means to say, Abba, Father. Now, this is described as a cry. We cry, Abba, Father. This word cry in the Greek translation of the Psalms shows up over 40 times. And it usually means prayer. I'll give you just an example. Psalm 18, verse 6. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple. And my cry came before him, even to his ears. That same word cry is what we are reading here in Romans. It refers to a prayer. Now this doesn't have to be um, a prayer. A spoken prayer even, right? This could be a silent prayer. It is really talking here about a disposition of the heart. Your heart itself is enabled by God the Holy Spirit to cry out to God as your Father. Now, of course, it can be a spoken prayer. And it can be a public prayer or it can be a private prayer. It can be a loud prayer or a quiet prayer. It can be a short prayer or a long prayer. The point is, is that The Spirit of God works in the sons of God, the faith in God to cry out to him as their father, knowing that he hears them and that they have access to him. You see, by virtue of your union with Jesus Christ and by power of the Holy Spirit, you can call upon God with the exact same expectation that Jesus Christ had. In John's gospel, John chapter 11, verses 41 and 42, Jesus says this, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me. Beloved, that is the confidence you can have as sons of God. Father, my Father, Abba, Father, I thank you that you hear me, for you always hear me. Why? Because God has adopted you and made you his children. In addition to the Spirit's enabling of us to cry out to God, we also have the Spirit's witness within us. We read here in verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness within our spirits. So it is like the Spirit of God teaching our spirits that we are the sons of God so that our spirits, our thinking, 
recognizes that. The Spirit teaches us that we are the sons of God. In 1 John 3, verse 24, we read this. By this, we know that he abides in us. In other words, by this, we know that God abides in us. By the Spirit whom he has given us. There is a, call this the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God speaks inwardly in, in places of our soul that are out of, uh, it's an almost, un, not, we're not able to understand it entirely. But he teaches us that God is our Father. We read this in Hosea chapter 2. The Lord says, I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they shall say, you are my God. Do you see how there's a conversation, a dialogue taking place between God and people? God says to you, you are my child. And you, hearing that, respond to him, you are my God. So the Spirit bears witness with your spirit. Therefore, you know that God is your Father. Now, sometimes we may say, well, I didn't have a good father, or I didn't have a father, or I didn't know my father. Therefore, I cannot relate to God as my father. But what I want you to know is that you do have a father, and you can relate to that father, and your concept for fatherhood is based not upon the failures of our human fathers, but it is based upon the perfect father that you have in heaven. And you look to the scriptures and you see the relationship between God the Son and God the Father. And you know that that is what fatherhood is. That is what it means to be a son of God. That is what it means to be a father. You have that perfect example and that is your expectation for fatherhood. Therefore, you can have great confidence in God your Father. So that is the confidence we have. Let's look at the third point, the inheritance of God's children. Verse 17 says, If children, then heirs. If children, then heirs. Another inference being drawn here, and that seems pretty obvious on its face, right? Well, if you're God's child, then you're an heir of God. Proverbs 13.22 says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. But we all know that human fathers, for a variety of reasons, some of them evil, some of them circumstantial, whatever, a human father may fail to leave an inheritance for some or even all of his children. It is not so with God, is it? All of God's children whether male or female, from the first to the last, from the least to the greatest, every single one of them is an heir. Christian, you are a child of the king of all creation. And he has an inheritance for you. You are an heir of God. If you are his child, then you are his heir. Now, even if one does receive a good inheritance from his earthly father, 
there is no guarantee that he will enjoy it or benefit from it. For moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But your inheritance from God, as Peter tells us, is incorruptible and undefiled. It does not fade away and it is kept in the heavens for you. You see, the inheritance which God gives you is not something that can be taken away. It is good for us to think of our salvation as inheritance. Because while being God's child gives us a right to it, right, we have a right <clears throat> to all the privileges of the sons of God. And God just said, if children, then heirs. You have that right. But even though you have a right to it, it's always the case that eternal life is inherited and not merited. Right? It is always, like, think of it, even in an earthly sense, what does one have to do in order to become an heir? Be born. Right? So, too, with the kingdom of heaven. You didn't do anything to earn that or deserve it. God is giving it to you as an inheritance. God is taking from his riches and giving to your poverty. The apostle continues and says, heirs of God. If children, then heirs. Heirs of God. And this is telling us two things. Not only are you, are you God's heirs, but God himself is your inheritance. This is not merely survivorship. right? Survivorship is the right to someone's stuff. This is a relationship. The right to to fellowship with God forever. To be with God himself, to have him be your father, you be his child. Jesus taught this in John 17, verse 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, he's talking to the Father, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You see, eternal life is not just not dying forever. Eternal life is living as a son of God with God forever. And that's the promise of life here. And this brings us kind of full circle to the life that is promised to those who put to death the deeds of the flesh. The life that is being promised, as I say, is this inheritance, which is God himself. And God is life. And to possess God, right, to, to be an heir of him is to possess life. Now the apostle continues, we are joint heirs with Christ. All that Jesus Christ is entitled to is yours. Our older brother, Jesus Christ, shares his inheritance with us. Everything that the man Jesus can receive, you will receive. We are co-heirs with him. And he, beloved, think of it. People in heaven right now are still longing for the fullness of their inheritance. Why? Because God does not want to give it all to them until we are there. Until every last child of God is there. Then we all will get the full package. So to you belong all the rights and privileges 
that belong to the Son of God. Now, there is a condition coming in Romans chapter 8, verse 17. And with that condition, we will see that the apostle is introducing another topic, and that of suffering. But it is intimately related to sonship, to being adopted. So there's a condition, right? The, the, the life that we're going to have is glorious, right? That you may be glorified together. But the condition is if we suffer with him. If indeed we suffer with him. Jesus himself said this in Matthew chapter 16. If anyone desires to come after me, let him, take up, let him deny himself and take up his cross. In this world, you will have trouble. This morning, Pastor Heupel said, one of the things that God promises you is difficulties in this world. But I want you to see here the design or the, or the purpose of the suffering. Okay, so this is in verse 17. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. The purpose or God's design in our afflictions is that we are glorified together with Christ. And can we look back to our perfect pattern, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, anointed with God, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit led him through his trials and brought him to the cross. And Jesus was obedient to the point of death. But then the Spirit raised him up and the Spirit ascended him to heaven and glorified him. That's the process. Right now you are sons of God. The Spirit of God is with you. The Spirit of God is leading you through your trials. And if you suffer with Christ, then you will be glorified with him. Which means go to heaven forever and ever to be with him. Now when we speak of suffering with Christ, of course we have to understand that to be suffering for his name. Suffering for his sake. Principally, how did Christ suffer? By resisting sin. By putting to death the deeds of the body. Now, of course, he also suffered in other ways. right? He suffered the contradiction of sinners. He suffered want, and he suffered tiredness, and he suffered beatings, and all of these other things. And all of those are applicable. But the principal thing that the apostle is talking about here is suffering in our battle against sin. If you suffer with Christ, know this. Christ is with you in your sufferings. He has tasted it ahead of time for you and he does not abandon you in it. There's sort of a, another aspect to this. So we suffer with Christ, but do you know that when a Christian suffers, whatever kind of suffering that may be, that's Christian suffering. Okay? When you suffer as a Christian, that's Christian suffering. That means that all of your sufferings become suffering with Christ. Why? Because you are united to him. You are with him. And he is with you. Think of it this way. Even the suffering that you deserve. Like say we, say we commit a sin. And we need to be disciplined for it. Or we do something foolish and we bring trouble upon ourselves. God does not abandon us or forsake us in that suffering, does he? No, he stands by. He keeps us. He stands ready to forgive us when we repent. 
Christ is there. The Holy Spirit is there with us the whole time. Do you see, even the suffering that we bring upon ourselves is still Christian suffering. Why? You're a child of God. And a child of God, when he suffers, suffers as a Christian. And when Christians suffer, that's Christian suffering, which is to say to suffer with Christ. F.F. Bruce, Bible commentator, says this about suffering with Christ. The very afflictions and privations which wear down the outer man are the means used by the Spirit of God to renew the inner man more and more until at last the outer man disappears altogether and the inner man is fully formed after the image of Christ. What he's saying is the very things, the very difficulties we go through Suffering, afflictions, whether physical or spiritual, those afflictions are wearing down the outer man, that old sinful body. And that is what God is using then to renew the inner man more and more and to conform us to the likeness of Christ. And that's what will bring us to glory with him. So, beloved, the Spirit leads the sons of God. He led Israel through their Afflictions and brought them to their inheritance as promised. He led Jesus through his trials and brought him to his inheritance, even raising him from the dead. You can be confident that God, your Father, will lead you through your trials to your inheritance. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Father, we beg, O Lord, that you would increase the work of your spirit in us, that you would stir up in us, O Lord, the grace of faith, that we would have a mighty trust in you, that everyone here in this room, O God, that they would cry out to you as their father, knowing that you hear them, knowing, God, that you love them, knowing, Lord, that you stand by ready to forgive, ready to comfort, ready to keep. We ask, O God, that you would do this according to Christ's Merit according to the powerful working of God the Holy Spirit and according to your everlasting counsel. Do these things for us, O God, please. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.